The words that I'd like to draw your attention to this morning are found in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 6. So if you would turn with me there. looking at that because Mark Heberger had talked to me this morning and said something about the uh, Hill Cumorah pageant and for some reason he was under the impression that it looked like we were supporting the pageant. We're not. We're supporting the people who are sharing the way, the truth, and the life at the pageant. So just in case that comes up somewhere. I'd like to read again this portion of Scripture. It says, fresh on our hearts. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. Yes, there's an altar in heaven. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The word of the Lord. Why the need for this prophecy? Isaiah had been a prophet for a long while before this vision. The Bible tells us it was at a period of time, within a year's time, somewhere in that period, that King Uzziah died. And Israel was about to embark in a lifestyle of sin. See, King Uzziah was a good man. He reigned several years. Yet he did one thing wrong. When God had given him the extra years of life, after he had told him he was going to die, and Uzziah prayed, and the prophet came and told him, don't worry, you're not going to die. It was in this period of time two things happened. Uzziah became prideful and Manasseh was born. And out of the king's pride, 
There were envoys from another faraway country who came and the king showed him all that he had out of pride. So God sent the prophet and said, what you did was not good. And your people will be drawn into sin as a result of it. And King Uzziah said to himself, well, at least it won't happen in my lifetime. And we know the rest of the story that Manasseh took the people of Israel down the long road to sin and debauchery, worshiping false gods, raising the high places that people would worship there, sacrificing his own sons to a false god, and bringing all Israel with him. See, the years of prosperity, the years of peace, all wiped away in an instant over one sin. Manasseh was one of the most sinful kings that Israel had ever known. Yet by God's grace, he did repent before he died and make restitution. But I believe... Although the Bible does not state this, many authorities say, whoever authorities they may be, that it was during this reign that Isaiah himself was put to death, sawn in two, for keeping the testimony of the Lord. But you see, although Isaiah had been a prophet for several years, God was calling him to a special prophecy. He was calling His people back. Back to God's holiness. Away from their sin. And what was it that the prophet needed more than anything else but a vision of God. A vision of His glory. A vision of His holiness. And so Isaiah is the prophet of holiness. All through his prophecy, he calls God the Holy One of Israel. When we look at ourselves today, and we say to ourselves, are we far removed from that period of time? As a church. I'm not saying just as a local congregation. I'm saying as the church universal. How many people in Israel's day say, I am Jewish. I am of the tribe of Israel. I am favored by God because I am a Jew. Yet, how they fell to debauchery and sin doing things they ought not to have done, ignoring God, ignoring His Word, mocking His holiness by a lifestyle contrary to His will. And how many today say, I am a Christian. I believe on Jesus. I believe that He died for my sins. I believe that His blood was shed for me. 
And yet they are giving the Gentiles a reason to blaspheme God. We are not so far removed from the days of Isaiah. You see, it is high time we call the church back to the holiness of God. Back to the king upon the throne. Back to a lifestyle of holiness that honors the confession that we make or profession as a Christian. And if there was one major point that I would like to make to you this morning, it is this. Man will never see his need for atonement until he is confronted by the holiness of God. Therefore, it is the utmost importance that God's people be holy. And there are three points that I would like to make as we look at Isaiah's prophecy. And the first is, holiness is the chief attribute of God. Holiness is the chief attribute of God. Secondly, only when we are exposed to God's holiness is the true nature of our heart revealed. And then lastly, the revelation of our heart's condition requires nothing less than atonement. So let's look at the first point. What is holiness? Isaiah, in that year that King Uzziah died, saw the Lord. He saw Him for a reason. God was preparing him to be the prophet of holiness. No other prophecy or book in the Bible mentions the holiness of God more than Isaiah. And what did he see? He saw the seraphim. Those who are with God continually in God's presence. Now we have a saying. We say familiarity breeds contempt. And we might say that as seraphim continually in God's presence, they might think of themselves as better or higher than all the other created beings in the universe. For they alone have this privilege of being in God's presence continually. But what does the Bible say that their character is like and their response to being in God's presence is? It tells us each had six wings. And what was the purpose of those wings? Why did God create these beings and give them these wings? Well, what does the Bible say? With two, He covered His face. See, even the seraphim who are in God's presence continually must shield themselves from the God's glory. With two, He covered His feet, that which represents clay or the debased things, the common things. They covered their feet. And then with two, they flew. And what were they doing as they were flying? Well, the Bible tells us, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. This was the message on their lips. Imagine being created for this one purpose. 
to glorify God and to exclaim His holiness. And note that the Bible says that they proclaimed it to one another. It wasn't so much that they were proclaiming it to God Himself. They proclaimed it to one another. They were saying, look, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. God does not need them to remind Him of something He already knows. He knows He is holy. He knows He is glorious. Yet they proclaim it to one another. The Bible says the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Do you have this vision of God? Is this the God that you serve? Do you see Him high and lifted up? His train filling the temple on His throne. Do you see His glory when you pray? Do you see His glory when you worship? Do you see His glory when you are at work? Do you see His glory when you are with your family? When you are with your friends? Wherever you are. Is this the God that you worship? Is this the God that you worship? I think it's important at this time that we define what holiness is. Why is it so important that out of all the things the seraphs could have said, this was priority? Holiness is an essential part of the nature of God. God's holiness is perfect freedom from evil. It is the absolute absence of any evil in Him. 2 John 1.5 tells us, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Not even a shadow of darkness. Absolutely free from it. And light and darkness, when used in this way in Scripture, have a moral significance. John is telling us, in effect, that God is absolutely free from any moral evil and that He is Himself the essence of moral purity. Wow! Is that the God you serve this morning? Is it any wonder that the writer of the Hebrews can say, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? Is it any wonder that the prophet Habakkuk could write, your eyes, speaking of God, are too pure to look on evil? To be in God's presence in our current state would be terror and torture. Because we have not and glorified yet, and prepared for that presence. William Mounts has a wonderful dictionary on biblical words. He defines holy as follows. It describes that which is by nature sacred, or that which has been admitted to the sphere of the sacred by divine right. It describes, therefore, that which is distinct or separate from the common or profane. 
In Isaiah, holy casts the sinfulness of Isaiah's day in sharp contrast to God's moral perfection and expresses God's absolute separation from evil. Because God is holy, He is free from the moral imperfections and frailties common to human beings. It is where we get our term, the transcendence of God. In other words, He is completely other than us, higher than us. He is the pinnacle of other. And there is nothing that goes higher than God Himself in His holiness. And it is because of this very thing that we are called to be holy. If we are to serve the true and living God, our fellowship depends on this holiness. Look at 1 Peter with me. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter quoting from the Old Testament. Beginning with verse 15, says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, not just in church, not just in special times when we gather together to study the Word of God, in all your conduct. Since it is written, what is the motivation? You shall be holy, for I am holy. But I stated that holiness is the chief attribute of God. Out of all of God's attributes, how can I say that this is His chief attribute? Well, first of all, notice as the seraphs speak the words... They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And I know some have tried to say, well, the reason they do this is because He is a Trinitarian God. So thrice holy. But when you understand Hebrew literature, repetition is for emphasis. Much like we might highlight something or underlining it. They are saying... Holy is the Lord God of hosts. No, I don't think you heard me. Holy is the Lord God of hosts. I want to say it again. Holy is the Lord God of hosts. Do you hear me now? And Revelations 4, 8 was read for us. The very same words, the very same group gathered together in worship of the Lord God Almighty. And what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Do you know that there is no other attribute in all of Scripture that is repeated this way? You never hear, mercy, mercy, mercy is the Lord God of hosts. Compassion, compassion, compassion is the Lord God of hosts. Just, just, just is the Lord God of hosts. No. It is holy, holy, holy. But you see, holiness accents all the other attributes of God. What do I mean by that? God is just. 
but it is a holy justice. God is merciful, but it is a holy mercy. God is compassionate, but it is a holy compassion. God is forgiving, but it is a holy forgiveness. You see, if God were not holy, He could not be God. You see, His justice, if it were not holy, would be arbitrary. His compassion, if it were not holy, would be nothing more than sentimentalism. His mercy, if it were not holy, would be fleeting. And His love, if it were not holy, would be fickle. And His forgiveness, without being holy, would be temporary. Do you see why it is so important that we understand this doctrine of the holiness of God? It binds it all together. It makes Him a complete God. And God's holiness is the reason we find in Exodus 33 that no one can stand in God's presence and live. God's glory. We talk about His outshining of His transcendence of His person. It's nothing more than the outward manifestation of His holiness. We'll look at that a little more later when we are confronted by Christ and His glory. So God's holiness is His chief attribute. And when we are exposed to this attribute, it reveals our sinful nature. Look at Isaiah's response. And I said, here he is, in this scene, seeing the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings on His throne, woe is me, For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now what was Isaiah saying here? He was not saying, Oh, I'm terrified in God's presence. And he was not saying, Oh, I am worried. This term, woe, has a much greater emphasis in the Hebrew. What is he saying? He is pronouncing a curse of death upon himself. See, he knew Scripture, and he knew that anyone who would be exposed to God's presence had the penalty of death written upon them. Because of His glory. Because of His holiness. And He said, woe is me. I'm a dead man. But not only this. But see, think about this for a moment. Isaiah had already been God's prophet for several years. 
He had been a man of prayer. He had been a man of the Word. He had done what God had asked him to do. So you'd think that someone who honors God in this way amidst a group of sinful people would have the right to enter into God's presence without fear and trembling. But beloved, it's not so. Because when we are confronted with absolute purity, absolute holiness, absolute sinlessness, like a mirror reflecting all of our imperfections, so the glory of God reveals within us such a sinful nature. And we cry out. We cover our faces as in Revelation they ask and cry out for the rocks to fall upon them that they might hide from the presence of the Lamb. Because a man, woman, or child serves God does not necessarily mean they have the privilege to be in God's presence and not tremble. So how then should we respond in God's presence? We should realize our abject poverty in His presence. Now we say that wherever two or three are gathered together, there Christ is in the midst of us. So I'm certain we have more than two or three here. What are we doing this morning in this place? Have we not come to worship this holy God? And is His presence not here? And so I ask you, how many of you prepared your hearts for that presence this morning? How many of you examined yourselves before you came into this place, knowing that you would be in the presence of a holy God. How many of you have done that? You see, if God is too pure, His eyes are too pure to look upon sin, and if you have not prepared your hearts for worship, what is in your hearts that God would refuse to look at? Now, I know the sermon to this point sounds a bit imbalanced. But we're getting to the good part. Don't worry. But my whole point right now, and I'm belaboring the point, I know, but there's a reason for it. In understanding the holiness of God, I think we've forgotten that. We have forgotten We have become so comfortable, like Israel did. We've had peace. We have everything we need. God has provided our daily bread. And we have no want of anything. And so we've forgotten. And so now, when we come into the presence of God, we forget that He is a holy God who deserves our reverence. What has caused us, us, 
to lose that holy fear. Now, I'm sure I don't have everything down. I wrote down four things. But I do believe from my own personal self-examination, this comes from my heart. Well, first of all, an overemphasis of election and predestination. See, we tend to look into the hidden things of God. We look at it from His perspective, and we're not allowed to go there. The Bible says, the secret things belong unto God, but the things that are revealed belong unto us and to our children. You see, but election, although we we think we understand it, and we think we understand predestination, and we say from the redeemed perspective, I was elected before the foundation of the world. I was predestined before the foundation of the world to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But if you depend on your election and not on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you are in danger. As I had spoken to someone prior to this, and we were talking about salvation, we were talking about the Redeemer and redemption, and they spoke about election as if they were both the same thing. They're not. Election is not salvation. Election is God's end of everything and the beginning of everything. Though we were chosen before the foundation of the world, election did not die on the cross for you. Election was not nailed there. It was Jesus Christ and Him alone. It is to Him that we are to look for our salvation. Not election. Not even our faith is what saves us. Faith was not nailed to the cross. It is Christ and Christ alone who saves. It is to Him and Him alone that we are to look and to keep our eyes fixed. He is the author and perfecter of our salvation and no one else and nothing else. How foolish would it be if after surgery we approached the table that had all the implements that cut us open, and we say, oh, I thank you, scalpel. I thank you, forceps. Ridiculous, isn't it? Yet what are we doing when we depend on election, when we depend on predestination, when we depend on our own faith? We are saying the same thing. It is Christ, and Christ alone we are to depend upon. So not only is it an overemphasis of election and predestination, but an underemphasis of sin. An underemphasis of sin. If God's eyes are too pure to look on anything that is sinful or unholy, how can we have the audacity to say that one sin is greater than another? We say... Little white lies. There is no white about it. Well, that's a gray area. How many sins does it take for God to judge a human being? One. How many sins did it take for Adam and Eve to be cast out of the Garden of Eden? One. 
How many sins did Moses commit to prevent him from entering into the promised land? One. One. We underemphasize sin. Why? Well, part of the reason is it is like the, the, the frog in the boiling water. You know, you, you put them in the, the, the temperature of the water that they're used to, and then you slowly boil the water, and the frog will stay there and die as it adapts to the temperature of water, even to the point where the water boils and he dies. Now, we're so exposed to the world, we're spo- so exposed to the world's ways and the things of the world. And again, I'm preaching to myself. That after a while, as the temperature changes in the part of the world that we're in, the things that were sinful aren't so sinful now. And we fall prey to worldliness. And we begin to to change the definition of sin. The Bible tells us that sin is lawlessness. Sin is a rejection of God's rule over our hearts. It is when we sin, we are saying, I am autonomous. I do what I please. I am my own God. And we become idolaters. But sin is a horrible thing in the eyes of a holy God. Thirdly, there is a lack of emphasis on the tale of this, of the holiness of God. How many sermons have you heard lately on the holiness of God? Don't hear them much anymore. How many sermons do you hear on the wrath of God, the justice of God? You see, that's for the hellfire and brimstone guys. Isn't that nice that the world labels that preaching with contempt. And so we shudder at that style of preaching because we don't want to offend anyone. Beloved, yes, we do. Yes, we do. As God is holy, He has called us to be holy, to be different than the world. Why? Because if we're just like the world... Where will the world see its need for salvation? Where will the world see its sinful nature? If we are just like them, they're comfortable. Beloved, we don't want them to be comfortable. We don't want to be comfortable. If we're comfortable with our sin, we are in a bad state. And lastly... What has caused us to lose that holy fear? Perhaps an overemphasis of the attributes of God, such as His love, His mercy, and His compassion. We become imbalanced. God is love. God is compassionate. God is merciful. But that's not all God is. Because as I said before, it's a holy love. A holy mercy. A holy compassion. 
not arbitrary, not fickle. In Ezekiel chapter 22, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. Mark it down, though, so you can prove that I've spoken the word of God and not my own words. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 26. We read these words. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Do you hear that, church? They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. And do you call what is clean unclean? How do we do that? I hate Christian bumper stickers. Can I say that? Hate them with a passion. Why do we franchise God? Why? Why do we sell trinkets, hats, t-shirts, things with God's holy name on it? Now, please... I'm not trying to be legalistic here. Not telling you to trash your TV sets, throw out all your movies, throw out that that non-Christian music, nothing like that. But what I am trying to get you to understand is that God's name is holy. He honors it above everything. I remember A.W. Tozer. He spoke himself out of more places never invited back. He was asked to speak at a Christian writers convention. And you know what he did? He rebuked them for taking truth and making it fiction. Amazing, isn't it? And yet, when judgment comes, where will it start? Where, church? house of the Lord. Who is the house of the Lord? We are. It'll start with us. There is going to come a day and it is not far. I'm not the prophet. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But the days are coming, church, when there will be a sharp distinction between the true and the false between the true Christian and those who profess to be Christian. It is coming. It is at our very doorstep when those who call themselves Christians ordain homosexuals to the pulpit. And we think God will not judge that? There's going to come a day when if I speak things like that, I will be thrown in jail. Throw me in jail. Three meals a day, cable, and I can get an education. But at least I'll preach the gospel in jail. 
and they will listen. See, I think part of the reason we're in the state we're in is because we've forgotten the holiness of God. We've forgotten how to be separate. We've forgotten to be distinct, other than the world. It is to the point that even in our worship services, what are they doing? They do a demographic. They find out what kind of people would appreciate this style of church. And oh, it's loaded because the demographic affects those who are young urban professionals who make six-digit income. Just a coincidence. And what do we do? We change our music. We change our preaching. We smile them to hell. We think that because people are in a building, that is good for them to be there. Yet if we do not preach the gospel, if we do not preach a crucified and risen Savior, it is not a Christian message. Any message that does not preach Christ is nothing but a moralistic sermon. And you can get that from the Mormon church. You can get that from a Jewish synagogue. You can get that from an Islamic mosque. But it cannot be said here. Because Christ is the one who makes the difference. All other religion is works-oriented It is only the Christian religion that preaches a crucified Savior who bore our penalty on our behalf, who substituted Himself for us on the cross and took God's wrath on the cross. Where did Christ suffer hell? On the cross. We're to be different. We're to be other. But what happens when we lose our sense of holiness? Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, if you would, please. Beginning with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Mark that well. Who is Paul writing to in the epistle to the Romans? Yes, I know it's the Romans. Believers. Believers. Who needs to be careful not to suppress the righteousness of God? Believers. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So again, he's speaking here of God's natural revelation. The unbeliever has no excuse, the Bible says. No excuse whatsoever. All the evidence is there, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Yet the believer can also do such things. I'm going to show you that. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God 
or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So what is he saying here? They took the creation and worshipped the creation rather than the creator. Therefore, God gave them up. Mark that well. Three times it tells us this. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for the error. Do you see the progression here? And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. For time's sake, I'll stop there. So what am I saying? How does this apply to the believer then? Although the context here, he is speaking to what happened with unbelievers who suppress the truth that they have from natural revelation. The same can be done with the believer. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it for a moment. When do we become idolaters? When we worship something other than God. And when do we worship something other than God? When we take our eyes off of Him and place them on something else. A good example is Peter. He did walk on the water, didn't he? But when did he sink? When he looked at the wind and the waves. He took his eyes off of his Savior. That's what happens to the believer. When we take our eyes off of God and let something else take His place, the progression starts. And God, in His judgment, gives them over. You say, well, that's mean. That's cruel. No. God gives them over so that they will repent. How many times in the prophets does it speak of God punishing Israel, yet they did not repent. They only became angered with God and blasphemed His name because of the result of what they were going through. They were self-centered, self-focused. They should have taken that opportunity in the afflictions that they were under and they should have looked to God and asked for repentance. And yet when we take our eyes off of the holiness of God, we look at the profane and we look at the common and we worship them as if they were God. And they enter in our lives subtly and slowly and the progression begins to start. God gives them over. God gives them up. God gives them up. To the point where the Apostle Paul could actually say, To the Corinthian church, I have given one such over to the devil for the destruction of his flesh that his soul might be preserved. Do not mock God's kindness. His kindness is to lead to repentance. 
What is the solution to this problem then? The revelation of our heart's condition requires atonement. Turn back to Isaiah. Isaiah recognized his condition, his sins. He had nowhere to turn. Where do you turn when you're in the presence of God and you pronounce the sentence of death upon yourself? Where can you go? How can you flee from that? There was no place he could go. But you see, it was an act of God that atoned for Isaiah's sin. Watch. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. What is the altar? It's the altar of sacrifice. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, he has touched your lips, or this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, how can a coal from the altar atone for Isaiah's sins? It is what the altar represents. It represents Christ's sacrifice. The Lamb of God who was slain when? Before the foundation of the world. And who was it that Isaiah saw? He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Who did he see? The Bible says, no man shall see God and live. So how is it that Isaiah could live in the presence of God? Isaiah saw none other than the glorified Christ. He saw Jesus Christ in His glorified state with the glory that He had with the Father before He came to earth. How do we know that? Look at John's Gospel, chapter 12. Look at verse 41. Actually, we'll start with verse 39 because he is quoting from this very prophecy. Therefore, they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, Mark the next verse. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory did he see? Not other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's whom Isaiah saw that day when he saw the Lord high and lifted up with his train filling the temple. See, it was in Christ that God created the world. It is in Christ that God reveals Himself to Isaiah. It is in Christ that God reigns, and it is in Christ that God will judge. And what is our attitude towards these things? Well, let me ask you a question. 
When is the last time you trembled? When is the last time you trembled before this holy God? When is the last time you fell on your face before this holy God? And why is it important for us to know these things today? Well, there are two verses in the Bible that parallel one, one another. The first is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. And the second is Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, in paraphrasing, the Bible says, Without holiness, no one shall see God. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, from the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord said, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. God wants his people pure in heart. He wants a holy people. Just as holiness accents all of God's attributes, so holiness accents every aspect of the believer's walk. It is to be a holy worship, a holy prayer life, a holy family life. We are to be holy at our vocations. We are to be holy in our relationship to one another. And we are to be holy in our relationship to the world. This is one of the major reasons why we have been given the gift of what? The Holy Spirit. God has said, be holy, for I am holy. And this is another reason why God's laws are written upon our hearts. Every time we look at the cross, we see the holiness of God displayed publicly. Are we so far removed from Isaiah's time that we do not need a fresh vision of the holiness of God? And in Hebrews 10, 26-31, there is a warning there. Look at that with me for a moment. What does it say? For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I'm not saying the person who falls into sin every now and then. And it does not say that here. What it does say is the person who sins deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but what is remaining, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more worse punishment. Mark these words well. How much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenants by which He was sanctified and has outraged 
the Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To whom is this addressed? And does this speak to you this morning? I know in a church this size, the percentage is that some of you have made false professions. You can speak the Christian language. You can say the right things. You read the right books. And yet, you honor God with your lips, but your heart is far from Him. Is it wrong for the New Testament Christian to tremble before God? Someone will say, well, I'm a child of God, therefore I can come boldly before the throne of grace. There is no need to tremble. There has never been in the history of the Christian church among those whom God has used an attitude such as this. All whom God used trembled. Luther trembled. Calvin trembled. Owen trembled. Edwards trembled. Whitfield trembled. Unless history is not enough for you. Have you ever read the reaction of the Apostle John when exposed to the presence of the glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 1? The Bible says that although John was the beloved disciple, he heard a voice behind him and he turned and he saw the glorified Christ and he fell as a dead man. He did not rush to Him with open arms. He did not say, Oh, Savior, it is You. Thank You. He fell as a dead man. This was a born-again believer. And he trembled. Who are we to think that we are beyond that or above trembling before a holy God? May God have mercy upon our souls if that is our attitude. You see, in heaven, there will be no sin. So what are we doing now? We are preparing ourselves for that by striving for holiness in this lifetime. And someone may well say, but I have been justified by the blood of Christ. I have believed on Jesus as my divine substitute. My hope rests on what Christ has done for me. Well, very well then. I ask you then, do you strive for holiness without which no one will see God? How does your lifestyle complement your confession? But someone will say, what of election? Are we not commanded to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith? As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. Are we not commanded to be all the more diligent to make our calling and election sure? As 2 Peter 1.10 tells us. Why are these things written if I am hanging my hat on election. It is because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We may deceive ourselves. 
into thinking that we are a child of God when we are far from it. Take to heart our Lord's application to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 where He talks about you shall know them by their fruits, not by their profession. And all those who did things, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? Did we not cast out demons in Your name? Did we not perform many miracles? And He will say, depart from Me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Our Lord gives that warning at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And who does He give it to? He gives it to us. We are to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Where are you today? Have you taken to heart the command to be holy because God is holy? Someone else will say, well, this sounds more like legalistic bondage. My reply would be that sin is bondage. For whoever commits sin is in bondage. He who sins is the slave of sin, our Lord said. Therefore, striving for holiness is true freedom. It is the opposite of bondage. But I would ask you a question. Why would you, who are a Christian with a new heart, struggle with this doctrine of holiness? It is a bad sign if this offends. Why? Mark this well. If we do not see our need for holiness, we will not see our need for Christ who said, apart from me, you can do nothing. They are tied together. Growth in holiness is synonymous with sanctification. If it was Christ whom Isaiah saw on the throne, and it is God's will that we be conformed into that image, then holiness should be a priority in the life of the Christian. How then does one strive for holiness? This is where it gets real simple. And I'm almost done. Make use of the means. First, I would ask you, are you born again? Are you truly born again? Have you surrendered to Christ Jesus, not only as Savior, but as Lord? As Lord. You cannot separate what God has joined together. He is Savior and Lord. There is no period of time where He could be one or the other. He is both. Have you been confronted with the holiness of God? And trembled. Seen your sinful condition and cried out to God for mercy. And asked that Christ would be your Savior. That Christ would be the one who suffered on your behalf. Who took God's wrath in your place. Have you done that? If you haven't, then everything I've said to you this morning is but fluff. And you will die in your sins. And you will stand before this holy God on a judgment day. And you will be separated from His holiness for God cannot look upon sin. But what if you are a Christian 
and you struggle with these areas? Let me give you some advice. First, there must be a conscious moment-by-moment walk with God. It is equivalent to being led by the Spirit. It is only as we spend time in God's presence that we see the seriousness of sin, the wretchedness of our condition, and flee to the cross for reconciliation. We must look to Jesus and not remove our gaze from Him, for He alone is the author and perfecter of our faith. When our eyes stray from Jesus, all else is idolatry, and we begin to set up high places. Then the downward spiral of Romans 1 18 through 32 begins. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And second, we must remember that as Christians, we have both the faculty and the resources to be holy. God has given us this problem, or this promise in 2 Peter 1 3, that we have been given everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. There is nothing that God has withheld from us that we need to grow in holiness. And we are to make use of these. We have His Holy Word. We have prayer. We have fellowship. The preaching of the Word. The Lord's Supper and baptism. All of these that God has given us that we might grow in holiness. Lastly, we must look back to the cross. As I stated Earlier, the cross is God's manifestation to the world of His holiness. Go there constantly. Go there daily. Go there moment by moment. Why? Because it is at the cross we are reminded of both the love of God and His holy justice. It is at the cross that we are reminded of His grace. It is at the cross we are humbled And thankful for such a great sacrifice. It is at the cross we are reminded that our holiness depends solely on the sacrifice of another. We are holy because the one who sits on the throne is the one who suffered the wrath of God's holy anger against all that is unholy. This is a call to repentance in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back to judge and judgment begins with the house of the Lord we need to repent for our lack of trembling against all that which is unholy we need to repent for calling that which is holy common Will you stand when Christ comes back to sweep away his enemies? Will you be able to stand in the presence of the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze, whose voice is like the roar of many rushing waters, whose face is like the sun shining in full strength, and out of whose mouth comes the two-edged sword? This is not just a call to repentance. It is a call to faith. To turn from self to Christ. To deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him. 
to turn from the profane to the holy, to cling to the cross and to the one who took the divine wrath in the place of all those who will believe, to embrace him as both Savior and Lord. Yes, Christ is coming. Even so, when the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith? Let us pray. Blessed Heavenly Father, I am so conscious of the darkness of my own heart. I desire to be broken. Forgive me for worshiping the profane rather than the holy and calling that which is holy common. God, you are a holy God. Restore your church back to a holiness that trembles in your presence. That the world may see that we are different because we serve a transcendent God who's different, who's high and lifted up above all his creation. Help us to live our lives in holiness, separate from this world. Cleanse us, I pray. And yet, Father, we thank you that we can come before your throne of grace through Christ Jesus. We thank you for so great a sacrifice, the name above every name upon which every knee shall bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Help us to look to that day with anticipation and not with fear. Cleanse us, I pray, Father. And may we keep our eyes fixed on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whose precious name we pray. Amen.